Well, good morning. Welcome uh, to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors uh, here. Go ahead and find a seat as we begin with a word of prayer. Father, grateful for an opportunity for us to gather together this morning and to uh, consider uh, your word and uh, to hopefully have it uh, influence and impress upon our hearts and minds um, and, uh, and that we would be conformed to the image of your son in the way that we think, in the way that we love, in the way that we act, um, that we would be uh, sanctified. And so we're grateful for the means of grace that you've given us this morning to be able to open up your word and, uh, and then as we move on from here to, uh, to sing and to uh, consider uh, the Psalms and so forth. And so just pray for your blessing upon today that where we have presuppositions, where we have assumptions, where we have uh, unbiblical biases, that uh, those would be removed and that we might uh, see and think and love uh, more clearly. We pray all these things because you're a good father who gives good gifts. And so we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, again, welcome. Uh, this semester in theological equipping class, we are talking about social and political issues. So we've talked about things like uh, the definition of equality and, uh, and justice. We've talked about the role of, uh, of government. We've talked about racism. We've talked about feminism. Uh, and, uh, and so what we're, uh, we're doing is we're trying to understand all of these culturally controversial topics, not because we as a church love controversy, but rather because we love Christ and we love his word and we want to submit to his word in all things. So we're trying to articulate more than just a few of, uh, opinions that are informed by CNN or Fox News or social media or something like that. We're trying to communicate how a biblically consistent Christian worldview thinks about all of these issues, all of these topics that we're talking about all semester. And so this morning, what we're going to talk about is the sanctity of life. In particular, we're going to talk about abortion. If you looked at your uh, syllabus that uh, we passed out at the beginning of the semester, you might have noticed that we said we're going to talk about abortion and euthanasia, but we decided uh, just to simplify that and just talk about uh, abortion. There's no real uh, you know, party that's arguing for euthanasia currently, and most of what we talk about in regards to abortion would also apply in that area, and so I thought it would be helpful to, uh, to be a little bit more uh, specific. We've already taught by the way, a theological equipping class on kind of a theology of the sanctity of life, and so as it relates to abortion and euthanasia and eugenics and, uh, and so forth. But today what we're trying to do is to take this broad theological topic and then kind of really spend more time developing the social and political nuances of the topic of uh, abortion. Now, due to this particular topic, due to the subject matter, uh, I want to give a couple of disclaimers. The first one is that my language at times is going to be a bit uh, explicit, a bit uh, graphic. Uh, not because I'm uh, trying to just be as graphic as possible or gratuitous or anything like that. The reason is because I think the topic really demands it. I think it's really easy for us when we hear the word abortion because we're so familiar with that word in our culture uh, that, that I think the word itself provides this emotional distance to the actual uh, act. We're so used to seeing and hearing that particular word that it doesn't really communicate what it actually entails. All right? It isn't just this medical procedure, as we're going to talk about, it is murder. And it isn't just murder, it is torture of the most vulnerable, most defenseless 
among us. And so I don't want us to kind of hide behind this safe, sterile word abortion. What I need to do is kind of pull back the curtain a bit. And and so again, I won't be gratuitous, but I will be a little bit graphic whenever we describe what this actually entails. So that's the first uh, caveat. The second one, for anyone in this room who might have had an abortion, or someone who has a loved one that has had an abortion, I want to clarify, this lesson is not intended to shame you. That is not the purpose. Abortion is horrific, it's egregious, and yet every single one of us in this room, every single one of us in this room has grossly sinned against the Lord. Every one of us is in need of grace and forgiveness. And if you're contrite, if you're repentant for any sin, uh, including abortion, There's mercy to be found at the cross. So with those caveats in mind, let's give an overview of what we're going to be talking about this morning. There's four things in particular you'll see there in your notes. First, I wanna give you just a few facts about abortion. I wanna actually describe it. That's gonna be the more graphic and explicit part of the lesson. Second, what should Christians think about it? Third, why is this so controversial when it shouldn't be at all? And then fourth, what are the social political implications on this topic? Again, what we're doing this semester is really taking all of these topics and then we want to dive down into the social political uh, aspect. Uh, So let's begin with facts about abortion. What is abortion? We're all familiar with that word. But what is it? Well, depending on the, uh, who you ask, the definition might kind of change a bit, but in its most simple definition, abortion is the ending of a pregnancy by some intentional means. That's what abortion is, the ending of a pregnancy by some intentional means. And how is that accomplished? Well, according to Planned Parenthood, if you go onto their website, the abortion procedure, quote, gently, gently empties your uterus gently empties your uterus, which sounds like a procedure that you might have at like a day spa or something like that. It's sweet, it's relaxing, it's fun. So let's look at how gentle this process actually is. And so when it comes to abortion, there are four main methods to carry that out. Three of them are surgical, one of them is pharmaceutical. And here's where we have to be a bit more graphic lest we're lulled into this false sense that this isn't necessarily all that barbaric and horrific. When it comes to surgical methods, there are three. There's what's called suction, there's D&E, and there's the mold technique. We'll talk about uh, each of those. First one, suction. This is about 82% of all abortions. A former uh, U.S. Surgeon General described it uh, as, uh, as follows. He said, a powerful suction tube is inserted through the dilated cervix into the uterus. This tears apart the body of the developing baby and the placenta. Sucking the pieces into a jar. The smaller, smaller parts of the body are recognizable as arms, legs, head, and so on. In other words, for the reasonable cost of an average of $451, you can literally rip apart another human. That's very gentle. The second one, D&E, dilation and evacuation. You typically give a shot into the abdomen to kill the baby before you begin. But from there, it's a blind procedure, meaning you don't know what position the baby is actually in. So you reach in with a clamp, you grab anything you possibly can, and then you pull hard. In fact, you pull really hard. With the first pull, you might get an arm or a leg. Then you reach in and you do it again. Maybe this time you get a head. And you do that over and over until you've removed the spine, the heart, the lungs, and everything else. 
Those first two work in the earlier uh, stages of pregnancy, but after about six months, the baby's far too developed to easily dismember. So instead, abortion providers use what's called the mold technique, M-O-L-D. Those are the combination of drugs that are given to induce a heart attack in the baby. Then you induce labor and you deliver the dead child. Although sometimes the baby isn't actually dead. Sometimes it survives. By the way, legislation was introduced last year in Congress to protect babies who survive attempted abortion. Uh, 97% of those on the political left opposed the measure. Again, these are babies that actually survived. 97% of those on political left opposed a bill that would protect them. In addition to these three surgical methods, some 16% or so of all abortions rely on non-surgical pharmaceutical means in which a combination of drugs are taken to induce a miscarriage. So this is what, quote, gently emptying your uterus actually entails, torturing and murdering a tiny defenseless human baby. And some version of that horrific act of infanticide, of murder, is done almost one million times a year in the U.S. alone. Roughly one every 35 seconds. About 2,500 per day. Think about all of the deaths that our culture is outraged by. School shootings, uh, mass murders by gunmen, shootings of unarmed men by police. Take all of those deaths that occur over the span of an entire year, add all of those together, more infants are murdered in a few days in the US. In fact, more infants are murdered in a week than all other murders in most years. This makes abortion the leading cause of death in the U.S. The leading cause of death in the U.S. Nearly twice as many people die from abortion as from the second most common cause of death, which is heart disease. And this act has been legal in the U.S. since Roe v. Wade, January 22, 1973. Since then, some estimates put the total number of abortions in the U.S. at 64 million. That's more than two Texases and one Louisiana. Let's put that into another context. Thus far, there have been around a, a, few, over, uh, a few more than 200,000 American deaths somewhat related to COVID. I don't, want to mention, I don't want to minimize that number. That is a big deal. And yet that number of babies are murdered every two months in the U.S. And that has been happening every single year for nearly 50 years. In other words, this is the human rights issue of our day. Nothing comes close. Not poverty, not racism, not environmentalism, but the slaughter of millions of babies. If you don't agree with that, I honestly think that it probably means that deep down you aren't really operating from a Christian worldview. That somewhere deep down you really don't think of them as babies, you think of them as something else. So let's talk about a Christian worldview. Let's take a breath and ask the question, what should Christians think about abortion? And here's the question behind that particular question. Is what is aborted, is that a baby? Or is it merely a clump of cells? Or is it some other subhuman tissue? Because if the baby is actually a baby, if it's actually human, then he or she is afforded rights and value by virtue 
of the fact that it shares in the Imago Dei, the image of God. It shares in our shared humanity and the call to love our neighbor and so forth. So is the object of the abortion a baby or not? And to answer that question, we need to ask, when does a person become a person? And when does life begin? Is it some arbitrary stage in development? For instance, when a child can walk, when a child can talk, when a child can eat solid foods? Is it when they emerge from the womb? And various answers have been given over time. Let me give you a few examples and then we'll consider the Christian biblical response. Aristotle said that life begins when the mother feels movement. The problem with that is that it tells us something about the mother's feelings, but not about the child's actual existence. Let me give you an example of this. So a year ago, our own Zach Lee, who everyone knows is brilliant, but Zach, a year ago, found out that Bruce Lee died. All right? Does that mean Bruce Lee died a year ago? No. He died in 1973. That's true, but Zach just found out for some reason that Bruce Lee died. So when we realize that something isn't always when something happens, in Zach's case, there was a gap of nearly 50 years, but our perception of something is sometimes an unreliable indicator of when that something happened. So likewise, a mom's perception of life seems to be a rather unreliable indicator of the actual beginning of life. Another answer is provided by the logic of Roe v. Wade, which implies that life begins at viability or when a baby could survive outside of the womb, although that's not actually what our current policy reflects in most places. And in just a bit, we'll talk about why this uh, particular view is inconsistent, the idea that life begins when the baby is viable or when it could survive outside of the womb. But that's one answer that people have given. Another view is offered by guys like Peter Singer, at Princeton, who holds that a child should not be afforded worth or human dignity until it develops linguistic or relational capabilities. Therefore, according to Singer, it's not murder for a mom to kill her newborn up to the point where it can walk and show signs of personality. And by the way, this implicit support of infanticide is the logical implication of saying that some sort of arbitrary stage in development is when life begins. If life begins when a baby is self-sufficient, what about humans who are dependent? Dependent on a pacemaker or dependent on insulin like our own Tim Hollis with diabetes. Or if life begins when a, uh, when a baby develops language and personality, what about people who have some sort of mental handicap such that they never develop those skills? Are they not people? Are they not humans? This is the problem with all of these arbitrary standards. They offer no real objective boundary between the murder of the unborn and the born. And in fact, this isn't just some sort of a logical, hypothetical implication. This is actually the position of many pro-abortionists. Feminist Beverly Harrison said, infanticide is not a great wrong. I do not want to be construed as condemning women who, under certain circumstances, quietly put their infants to death. Or bioethicist Jonathan Glover said, infanticide is sometimes right. And the objection to infanticide is at most no stronger than the objection to frustrating a baby's current set of desires, say by leaving him to cry unattended for a longish period. In other words, if you as a parent are willing to allow your kid to cry it out for a season, what's wrong with denying the very desire for the child to live in the first place? Or bioethicist John Harris says there is no obvious reason why one should think 
differently from an ethical point of view about a fetus when it's outside the womb rather than when it's inside the womb. Now, I actually agree with that statement, which is why I think it's morally repugnant to kill a baby inside the womb, although Harris is arguing in the opposite direction by implying that since it's so obviously okay to kill a baby in the womb, it's also okay to kill a baby after birth as well. And what do all of these different views on when life begins have in common? They're all subjective, they're all speculative, they're all unscientific, they're all unsubstantiated. In other words, they're arbitrary. On the other hand, a Christian position, the Christian position depends on more than guesses or feelings or cultural presuppositions. And the church universal believes that fertilization uh, slash conception is the starting point for life. So why has the church landed on the position that conception should be the starting point of life? Well, there's a number of reasons. Logic, science, and the Bible. Logic, science, and the Bible. Let's begin with logic. When it comes to logic, you should understand you cannot not know in one area of your life what you do know in every other area of your life. For example, you could not crush the eggs of a bald eagle and then try to defend yourself in court by saying it wasn't an eagle, it was just an egg. In fact, it's a felony to destroy bald eagle eggs or sea turtle eggs. Why? Because we intuitively know that that egg isn't just this egg, it's an actual eagle or an actual turtle. So logically, if destroying an animal egg is destroying an animal, then to kill a human fetus is to kill a human. It's illogical to claim otherwise. So for instance, the other day I saw a tweet that said, I've never met a pro-life vegan. Why the odd preference for chicken embryos over human ones? And the guy who wrote it isn't even really conservative. He was simply recognizing that there is a logical inconsistency of many of those who hold to pro-abortion position. So that's the first one, logic. Second, in addition to logic, you have science. Science helps us to see why the church has landed on conception as being the starting point for human life. And the overwhelming position of even the secular medical community is that life begins at conception. That was not always the case, but with medical advancement through things like ultrasounds, this is today considered a basic biological fact. As an aside, the church itself hasn't necessarily always had a consistent unified voice uh, on, uh, on abortion, but science was really helpful in actually cultivating more consensus among Christians. Prior to the 1960s and the 1970s, most faithful pastors and theologians for all of church history had upheld that abortion was immoral. But there was this softening uh, of the Christian response uh, in the 60s and the 70s for various philosophical reasons that we'll talk about uh, later. And so you see in the 60s and 70s that major institutions like Christianity Today, the Southern Baptist uh, uh, Convention, my alma mater, Dallas Theological Seminary, and, uh, and even conservative guys like uh, W.A. Criswell, who's the pastor of First Baptist, who was the pastor of First Baptist Dallas, Norman Geisler, Billy Graham, Bruce Waltke, and others, all either supported abortion rights or refused to give a definitive prohibition uh, through the 60s and 70s. But what's really interesting is that as technological advancements, uh, advancements gave us more medical insights and demonstrated what scripture has always implied that life begins at conception, each of these repented and began to strongly oppose abortion. So how definitive is the medical evidence 
today. Well, a couple of years ago, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services announced a formal position that life begins at conception, arguing that any other standard is relative and subjective. In other words, even though abortion on demand is the law of the land, the federal government today recognizes that life begins at conception. That's simply an inconsistency. Well, why does even the government, why do scientists, why, do, uh, why does the medical community uh, recognize that life begins at conception? Because there are really only four key differences between a toddler and a human embryo. Those four differences are size, level of development, environment, and degree of de- dependency. Size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. So here's the question. Are any of those distinctions morally relevant to the question of the value or the right to life. When it comes to size, do we think that larger humans are more important than smaller humans? Does Carl have more ontological value than Tim because he happens to be larger than Tim? Of course not. Or level of development, does a 24-year-old have more value than a 10-year-old? Do you think that your mom or your dad is more valuable than your child? Your mom or your dad is more developed than your child. What about environment? Does journeying eight inches down the birth canal somehow magically change your essential nature from non-child, non-human into child-human? What about degree of dependency? Are the disabled? Are those who are dependent on some sort of medical device or drug, are they somehow non-human? Are they subhuman? Of course not. We realize that none of these distinctions between the born and the unborn support the idea that one is ontologically or morally superior to the other. And yet, the only way that abortion makes moral sense is if there is some objective distinction between the unborn and the born that would somehow logically imply essential rights to the latter that are not afforded to the former. So this is why the medical and scientific communities nearly unanimously support the idea that life begins at conception. It's interesting that conservatives are sometimes seen as the enemies of science when in reality, when it comes to abortion, when it comes to human sexuality, when it comes to questions of gender and various other topics, it's actually liberals who actually ignore science. Conservatives are not anti-science. We are pro-science when that science is actually good science. Now, logic and science are helpful, but we know our ultimate authority is the Bible. So what does the Bible say about the beginning of life? Now, we all know abortion is this contemporary issue, but it really isn't a modern phenomenon. In fact, there's historical evidence of it it being practiced uh, in uh, antiquity. So in Greco-Roman culture, it was practiced for various reasons, actually, that are very similar to today, to prevent unwanted children, to hide evidence of sexual activity, or to avoid the expenses of child rearing. In fact, the, uh, the original Hippocratic Oath, which was written about 400 BC, included a line about not giving anything to produce an abortion. And so scripture was written within this surrounding culture that knew about and even practiced abortion. And even though the Bible isn't a scientific textbook, so it doesn't give us necessarily some of the answers that we might want Uh, in regards to some of the the finer points of of medicine or or science or whatever it might be, we do see hints. In fact, various texts suggest that the child in the womb is afforded worth, dignity, and humanity. For example, Psalm 139, 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. 
Psalm 51, five. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Luke 141, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, that's John the Baptist, leaped in her womb. Later it says that the baby, that's again John the Baptist in the womb, leaped for joy. Exodus 21, 22 through 25, this is really uh, instructive and, uh, and inter- uh, interesting. In fact, a lot of states in the U.S. actually have laws that are modeled on this particular part of the Mosaic law. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But notice this, if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Notice that what comes out of the pregnant woman is already considered a child. But notice also that if the child dies, what's the payment? The payment is life. Life for life, which suggests, again, that the child is human. When the Bible talks about killing a goat or ox, for instance, and it does, the penalty is not capital punishment. If you kill someone's goat, you don't die. Why not? Because human life and goat life are not the same. But adult life and unborn child life are both human life according to Scripture. That's what Exodus 21 is saying. So whether you're arguing from logic or from science or from the Bible, you should be able to confidently affirm that life and thus value and dignity and rights and so forth begins in the womb and at conception. So when it comes to uh, discussing the morality of abortion, is it a moral act or an immoral act? Christians really just need to ask two questions. First, is an unborn child a human life? We just answered that, it is, according to logic, according to science and according to the Bible. So is an unborn life, uh, is an unborn child a human life? Yes. Second question, does God ever give man the right to kill innocent life? I say innocent life because as we'll talk about in future weeks when we talk about just war and capital punishment, not all killing is necessarily wrong, but all murder is wrong. Taking innocent life is always wrong. When we say that we're pro-life, we mean pro-innocent life. By the way, one of the critiques of the pro-life cause is that we aren't really pro-life, we're just pro-birth. That's the slogan that's often used. So we're said to be inconsistent or hypocritical. We don't care about criminals or we don't care about immigrants or we don't care about the poor or whatever. We just care about babies. That's an illogical critique for a couple of reasons. First, because quality of life is different from actual life or death. Let's take poverty, for instance. What should we think of poverty? Well, it is certainly a biblical concern. We've talked about poverty uh, quite a bit this semester, but it's not in the same category as murder. One is about life, the other is about quality of life, and those aren't the same. Being unemployed is not nearly as bad as being murdered, right? How do I know? Because if I asked everyone in this room, show of hands, would you rather be fired or murdered tomorrow? I don't think I would get a lot of fired right? I'm sorry, the other way. (laughs) You guys are really depressed. You just want to die. COVID does that to you, man. So that's the first problem, right? It's inconsistent. Second, there is this profound biblical difference between the unjust murder of a baby and the just application of capital punishment or killing that takes place during just war. 
Murdering a baby is always wrong, but killing a criminal isn't necessarily always wrong. That's a false equivalence. That's apples and oranges. But again, we'll talk about that in a few weeks as we talk about those subjects. So again, the Bible is pro-life, not in the sense of forbidding absolutely all killing, but rather all unjust killing. And the killing of an unborn child certainly qualifies. So Exodus 20, 13 says, you shall not murder. By the way, that word for murder isn't the same as the Hebrew words for killing that occurs during capital punishment or warfare or something like that. The commandment isn't thou shalt not kill because God actually commands Israel to kill in certain contexts. So the command isn't thou shalt not kill, but thou shalt not murder. And Proverbs 6 makes the point well. Proverbs 6, 16 through 17. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Not theologically innocent blood, No one except Christ is actually theologically innocent, but morally innocent of any wrong worthy of death. And I can think of no crime that a baby in the womb commits that would merit capital punishment. What is their crime? Their crime is simply existing. Now, are there potential exceptions to this prohibition of abortion that we see in Scripture? Because a lot of people would agree whenever we say abortion is wrong, they would say, yeah, in general, I agree, but I think there are certain exceptions where it's permissible or maybe even preferable. For instance, in cases of rape or incest or if the child is disabled. But how does that logically follow? Is that child guilty of rape or incest? Of course not. So how does one injustice solve another injustice? The answer is it doesn't. Two wrongs don't make a right. Imagine, if you will, that you're in a a room of preschoolers and they're laughing and they're playing. And some of those kids were the products of rape or incest. Some of them have some sort of deformity or handicap. Maybe they have Down syndrome or some other genetic defect. Here's the question. Can you morally kill those three or four-year-olds? because of those conditions? And every one of us would say, of course not. Then why would it be morally acceptable to kill those same children in the womb? Bear in mind, there is no logical, medical, or biblical distinction between those kids that would bear on the morality of that act. Now obviously, I agree, rape, incest, disabilities present certain hardships, and those who experience those kinds of pregnancies deserve our love and compassion. But true love and compassion always means speaking the truth, not just doing what feels nice in the way that our culture understands the word nice. And so actual compassion would tell someone that even in such tragic cases, abortion is not justified. So is it ever? And I think the answer is that it might be. There have been two particular circumstances where a Christian worldview has said that maybe there's some gray. Two circumstances in which the, uh, the Christian worldview has said it might be possible to abort a child in these particular circumstances. All right, the first is if there is some sort of pregnancy in which the child has no chance to survive outside the womb. By that, I mean not just that the child would have a lower quality of life as we define it, but that the child actually physically could not survive at all, could not live at all outside of the womb. And second is if the life of the mother is actually physically threatened, like she would actually die if she gives birth. I'm not saying that these are exceptions. 
I'm just saying that there's some gray while everything else is black and white. By the way, less than 2% of all abortions are even related to rape or incest and only a small percentage are related to the actual survival of the mother or the viability of the child. In the overwhelming majority of cases, abortion is purely elective. By far the most common reason, something like 80% that women give for having an abortion is that it would, quote, substantially change their life. And they don't want that. So what should Christians think about abortion? Well, except possibly in the rare cases where it would save the mother's life, it's an immoral, sinful, egregious act of murder. That's it. Any other qualification is really just an attempt by us to make ourselves feel better about this horrific act that happens thousands of times a day in this country alone. So why is our culture so obsessed with abortion? And why is this controversial when it shouldn't be controversial at all from a logical, from a medical, from a biblical perspective? Even if you're not a Christian, it shouldn't be controversial because logic and medicine would also support the position. This seems like everything, like something that everyone should be able to agree on. It should be right up there with other universal laws like bacon is good or socialism is bad or Jordan is better than LeBron or mayo doesn't belong in a hamburger. This should be this no-brainer that murdering kids is really, really bad. Are you for murdering kids or against it? Oh, I'm against it. And yet here we are. It's legal and the majority of the country actually supports it in at least some circumstances. So why are we here? Well, first, who do I mean by we? To be sure, this isn't just an American issue. Abortion is legal in many countries, but the U.S. is somewhat unique in the degree to which it is illegal. In a study a few years ago, less than 30% of all Americans knew that Roe v. Wade made abortion legal in essentially all circumstances throughout pregnancy, including up to the point of birth. In fact, only three other countries, three, that's it. In the whole world, there's only three other countries that allow as much unfettered access to abortion, even up to full term. Two of those three are China and North Korea, which are hardly bastions of human rights. The other is Canada, which is barely a country. <laughs> so abortion is certainly an issue in other countries, but there's this distinct culture that surrounds the conversation in America that is somewhat unique to our particular context. As we've talked about quite a bit uh, this semester, our culture's assumptions and opinions are all influenced by philosophical currents. And that's definitely the case with Uh, uh, with abortion. So let me mention a few of these philosophical currents that kind of uh, uh, provide the fuel for where we are as a culture today. The first one is racism. Racism is inherently, explicitly related to abortion. There are currently about 43 million African Americans in the U.S. And yet abortion has killed 15 million black children since Roe v. Wade. In, in fact, abortion kills more black persons than all other causes of death put together. All other causes of death put together. And this shouldn't be surprising because the original founder of Planned Parenthood, the original pro-abortionist Margaret Sanger, was a noted racist. Don't take my word for it, take hers. She spoke of the gradual suppression. This is a quote, by the way. The gradual suppression, elimination, and eventual extinction of defective stocks, those human weeds which threaten the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization. 
Now, lest you aren't sure who she means by defective stalks and human weeds, she'll tell you, quote, we do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. Even Kanye West gets it. He said, Planned Parenthood clinics have been, quote, placed inside cities by white supremacists to do the devil's work. Kanye gets it. Why can't everybody else? And by the way, this doesn't just affect blacks. There are also a disproportionate number of abortions among Hispanics. A while back, I saw an online article that said, quote, abortion restrictions pose a threat to Latina advancement which is kind of funny because I thought that killing your children would pose a greater threat to your advancement. It's hard to advance as a group if you kill 20% of your people before they're born. So you see these racist roots that are part of the philosophical baggage in conversations on abortion today. In addition to racism, abortion is related to feminism. We've mentioned before that when we talk about feminism, we're really speaking of multiple waves of feminism. First wave feminism generally just wanted equal treatment and opportunity for women, but that is not what second and third wave feminism wants. What second and third wave feminism wants is to blur the boundaries between men and women. This is why you have modern feminism linked to the LGBTQ lobby. So modern feminism isn't about the emancipation of women from actual oppression, but rather emancipation from their restrictions of biology, from their own bodies, from the quote, tyranny of reproduction, as it's been called. So feminism relates to abortion in a number of ways. Let me give you two. Number one, in regards to sex. Men can have sex with fewer associated costs. So since feminism wants to blur the boundaries between men and women, abortion is seen as this necessary corrective to this perceived biological inequality between the sexes. Abortion is a way to protect the freedom to have, quote, sex without consequences. Or in addition to that, in regards to vocation, one of the goals of second wave feminism was to break the barriers between men and women and get women out of the home and into the workplace. Not to give them that option, which I would say is a a good option, but rather to uh, do it regardless of women's desires. The goal of modern feminism isn't to give women choices, but rather to restrict choices to make men and women virtually indistinguishable. indistinguishable. So uh, a feminist icon, Simone de Beauvoir, said no woman should be authorized to stay home to raise her children. Listen to that. No woman should be authorized to stay home to raise her children. By the way, authorized also means allowed. Women should not have that choice because if there is such a choice, too many women will make that one. So much for feminism being, quote, pro-choice. In other words, if women are going to advance in their careers like men, then pregnancy is this problem. It's an obstacle to corporate advancement. So abortion is a means of leveling the playing field. So yet again, as we've often said, modern feminism is ironically anti-woman. You need to understand that. Modern feminism is not original feminism. Modern feminism is not about women having rights. Modern feminism is about rebelling against what God says regarding women. It's anti-women. It says that in order to have worth and value, you as a woman have to do what? You have to discard what makes you uniquely woman and take on more masculine categories. In other words, feminism says that women will be valuable and beautiful when they become more like men. And that's really demeaning if you're a woman. And yet scores of women think that feminism is somehow liberating. 
From a biblical perspective, part of the glory of womanhood includes the unique contribution of bearing children. I can't do that. Tim can't do that. Even Jared with his feathered hair and his tight pants can't do that. Only women can do that. So when that is now viewed as inconvenient or unimportant, femininity is robbed of its glory and dignity. The ability to bear children is not accidental or incidental, but indeed part of the essential splendor and beauty of womanhood. By the way, I'm not saying that you have to have kids to have worth or value if you struggle with infertility. Don't mishear me. But abortion seeks to suppress rather than relish this unique nuance of femininity. In other words, abortion calls for women to deny their femininity and destroy that, that which they were given by God to defend. Modern feminism says that a fundamental biblical attribute of the glory of your identity is actually an obstacle to identity. Not only that, but you have to remember that 50% of all the kids who are aborted are little girls. The best way to be pro-woman is to be pro-life. There's nothing more anti-women than killing 500,000 women a year. In addition to feminism and racism, there's also existentialism. What is existentialism? Let me give you this slogan. Existence precedes essence. Does that help? Probably not. Let me explain. So historically, when you talked about truth, truth was seen as this objective thing. Something was true before or even whether or not you experienced that thing. Murder was inherently bad. Adultery was inherently bad. Regardless of what you thought about these things. Historically, essence, in other words, the definition of something preceded your experience of that thing. But then philosophers like John Paul Sartre and others said that's backwards, that truth begins with you. You get to define what's true. You define what things are as you experience them. They don't come predefined for you. Well, what does this have to do with abortion? Well, it has multiple implications. I'll give you a couple. First, it implies that an unborn baby doesn't have innate essence. Remember, according to existentialism, existence precedes essence. So it's possible for that baby to exist without having worth, meaning, or value. So until some future point in time, that child has no inherent dignity. It also means that you as a mom get to decide for yourself what's true in regards to abortion. That's what being pro-choice is all about. Existentialism is all about your truth. Like Oprah, you get a truth, then you get a truth, then you get a truth. Truth isn't objective. There's not the truth, but instead subjective. It's a truth. It's my truth. It's your truth. We all get a truth truth. So let me give you a couple of quotes from the so-called Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, the RCRC. They say, you are to claim your godlike, God-given role in creation by saying yes or no, secure in the knowledge that whatever you decide, after, honestly, uh, after having honestly sought what is right, God will bless. And abortion is a divinely blessed and guided act that can be practiced by a sovereign, isolated, moral agent with regard to any external moral or legal restraints and without concern about the moral status of the target of the act. That's not only blasphemous, it's existentialism. You decide what is true, you decide what is right, you decide what is moral and what is good. So when you understand some of these philosophical roots like racism and feminism and existentialism and postmodernism and pragmatism and so forth, you begin to see why abortion is so deeply entrenched in this left-leaning liberal mindset. Even with advancements in medical technology and with sting videos where Planned Parenthood admits to selling body parts, 
And with things like the Kermit Gosnell, uh, who was a doctor who killed babies even after they were born, the cultural needle hardly moves. So 25 or 30 years ago, abortion supporters hid the fact that this is the killing of an actual baby. But now many of them will just come out and say, yes, that's a human baby, but it doesn't matter. Why not? Because this cult, this culture of death is a natural result when the worship of self-actualization and self-fulfillment collides with this consumer culture. Not only in abortion, but euthanasia and eugenics and so forth. In other words, self becomes God. And convenience and comfort becomes our commodities of worship. And thus any child that's inconvenient is bound to the altar of child sacrifice to appease yourself. So today you read all these uh, arguments for abortion that women have a moral right to decide what to do with their bodies. There's all kinds of problems with that. First, they don't actually get to decide what to do with their bodies. God decides what you do with your body because it's first and foremost his. It's his by creation. If you're a believer, it's also his by redemption. You are not your own. You belong to God. And then, by the way, you also belong to your spouse. Husbands don't have rights over their own bodies. Wives don't have rights over their bodies, but they belong to each other. And then in addition to God and your spouse, you also belong to the church in the sense you're members of a body and you even belong to the government in another sense. That's four levels of management. You're like fifth in line in the use of your own body. Second, even if you did have a right to do whatever you wanted with your own body, that is not even the point. Does anyone have a right to decide what to do with other people's bodies? That's the real point. What if I want to use my body to punch you in the throat? Can I do that? Of course not. So why should a woman or a man, by the way, get to decide what to do with a baby's body? Abortion is not about women's bodies. It's about babies' bodies. Second, you'll hear people say banning abortion puts women's lives at risk because it forces them to use illegal abortionists. But that's absurd. That's like me saying, if you ban me from using a hitman to commit murder, I'll have to do it myself and I might mess it up. Should we legalize murder? Less people try to kill people? Of course not. Or my favorite, that men shouldn't speak to it. That's existentialism. That's postmodernism. We see this all the time in culture. Singles shouldn't talk about marriage. Men shouldn't talk about abortion. Whites shouldn't talk about racism. Heterosexuals shouldn't talk about homosexuality. Cisgendered persons shouldn't talk about transgenderism. Why not? Because truth is subjective. It's experience. And if you don't have that experience then you don't have the authority. And that's hogwash. I don't even know what hogwash is. Men have a right to speak about abortion as long as they're saying what the Bible says because it doesn't matter what men think of abortion or what women think of abortion, but rather what God thinks of abortion. My authority doesn't come from my experience. It comes from the authority of Scripture. Authority isn't something which is subjectively derived from my experiences, but objectively revealed by God. So you see all of these cultural presuppositions and assumptions influence how we think of abortion as a culture today. Why are we the way we are? Because we've drunk deeply as a culture of these philosophical fountains, not knowing that they're poisoned. So what are the political implications of a biblical worldview regarding abortion? When it comes to politics, there are two dangers that I think the church needs to avoid, at least two dangers, there's there's more than that. The first one I want to mention is when politics becomes a substitute for your theology. Ironically, you actually see that on both the left and the right. On the right, 
You have churches where their church services look like political rallies with flags and fireworks and a huge statue of Trump to pray toward. You see it on the left though as well, right? A lesbian minister delivers this prophetic message about how the love of God means that we shouldn't have prisons or something. And that's the first danger, that politics becomes the substitute for good theology. On the other hand, is the danger on the other end of the spectrum of failing to subject our politics to our theology. And this is, in my mind, an even greater danger today when scores of evangelicals simply parrot the same political opinions as Katy Perry or Jimmy Kimmel or something. So politics shouldn't ever be a substitute for your theology, but rather it has to be subjected to your theology. Our theological worldview should be the filter or the lens through which we view the world and thus think about things like government and voting and so forth. So if all of this is true, if abortion is the human rights issue of our generation, then this has to affect how we engage in the political sphere and it has to affect how we vote. In particular, let me be honest, it means that no Christian should ever vote for a pro-choice candidate. Am I saying that we should be single issue voters? That abortion is the only issue that we take into account? Well, what if I am? We all think there are certain issues that are so egregious as to completely disqualify someone from, from office. Let me give you this example. If someone ran on a platform of re-enslaving blacks, we would all say that would immediately disqualify them. Even if they were otherwise really articulate and otherwise nice, they had incredible economic policy. Or if someone ran on the Avengers Thanos platform, we're gonna wipe out 50% of the population in a random murder lottery within my first month in office. We'd all say, that person can't be president. That person can't be a congressman. That person can't be a senator. These kind of things would completely disqualify someone. Well, what is honestly more important in today's political and cultural and climate than a candidate who publicly supports murdering one million babies a year? Give me something that counterbalances that. The fact that we would even consider anything as a competing narrative probably indicates that deep down we really don't think of those babies as people. We really don't think of that as murder. We really don't think that they're uh, bestowed with uh, unalienable rights, including life. So sometimes you'll hear people say that they'll vote for a pro-choice candidate because the policies of the left are, are better on poverty or the environment or something like that. So let's pretend for a second that that's right. I don't think it is. I actually think that liberal policies on poverty hurt minorities and the poor and the environment. But let's pretend for a second that they're right. Should better policies regarding poverty, for example, outweigh pro-choice policies? Let's do a thought experiment. Suppose some politician came to you and said, I'll donate $100,000 to the charity of your choice if you'll help me kill your neighbor's three-year-old son. Would you do it? Of course not. And yet that is what you are implicitly doing if you vote for a pro-choice candidate because you think that they have better policies on poverty. Poverty in the U.S. is bad. Abortion is absolutely objectively worse. So I think you could be a single issue voter if the issue is big enough and I think the killing of one million babies is really big. That said, I'm not actually arguing that you have to be a one issue voter. Let me say the strongest thing I'm gonna say on politics all semester. We've intentionally avoided using the word Democrat or Republican all semester because we don't want to be pigeonholed uh, in a certain uh, perspective. 
So uh, hopefully we've gained a little bit of capital to be able to just briefly mention it today. 60 years ago, the differences between those two parties were mostly economic. So Christians with a biblical worldview could fit into either camp. 40 years ago, as the Democratic Party formally aligned itself with abortion, you had a lot more talk about single issue voting because the only real major platform differences were abortion and the economy. But today there are maybe a dozen Christian worldview differences between the two parties. Not only abortion, but LGBTQ platform, freedom of speech and religion, the right to self-defense, the ownership of private property, the very definition of justice and equality and racism, etc. So I get the heart behind the sentiment that Christians are not beholding to either, either political party, but at the same time, this doesn't mean that all choices are equally valid or appropriate. Those who say that a Christian today can vote for either party are about 40 years behind the culture. As it exists today, there are literally dozens of areas where the democratic platform opposes a biblical worldview. So here's my most politically explicit statement I'll make all semester. Even as I say it, I know that some might misunderstand. If you're listening online, you might assume I'm wearing a MAGA hat, about to pledge allegiance to the flag as a you know, bald eagle wearing a gun flies across the stage, <laughs> lands to emit some amber waves of grain or something. Am I saying that you have to vote for a Republican? Actually, I'm not saying that. I have opinions on that. I would be happy to share over coffee, but this is a lesson on abortion, not voting ethics. I'm not necessarily saying you have to vote for a Republican or a third party. I'm not even saying that you have to vote. I'm simply saying that you can't vote for someone who opposes life. I'm saying not that you have to vote for a Republican. I'm saying you can't vote for a candidate who endorses the killing of babies and the rights of an eight-year-old to transition genders and socialism and the new definitions of justice and racism and equality and a handful of other issues. Or rather, I'm saying you can vote for them, but not from a consistent biblical worldview. And that's what we're all about here in theological equipping class. We're trying to teach you how to take every thought captive to Christ, even our thoughts about voting and elections. So let's pray, and then we'll see what spicy Q&A things you have. Father, I thank you for uh, your grace and mercy. I thank you that you care. You care about human life, that uh, even as we uh, read about in the Psalms later today, what is man that you are mindful of him, that we are uh, grass and we are a mist, and yet you have bestowed us with honor and that you sent your son to save us. And so I'm grateful for your love for us, and I pray, uh, Lord, that we might be influenced as we think through these things uh, in a way that is consistent with your scripture, and that our hearts would break for the reality of uh, where we are as a culture today. So I pray that you would help us pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.